Stories That Matter Studios. I'm Nance Haxton, and this is The Streets of Your Town, The Journo Project. This podcast is all about recognising great Australian journos wherever they may be around the world. With the media in Australia under increasing attack and hard-won freedoms under threat, there's no better time to celebrate and highlight the work of the top journalists from down under. This renowned journo and multi-award winning author started his career as a cadet at the Gold Coast Bulletin, going on to write for some of the most respected broadsheets in Australia. To many people, Matthew Condon is now more well known as a true crime author, writing a series of books that now make up the definitive history of Queensland's corruption years before the famous Fitzgerald inquiry. He's also the author of 10 fiction books, and yet Matthew still proudly introduces himself as a reporter first. In this episode of The Journo Project, Matthew Condon tells us how he landed the pivotal interview with notorious former police commissioner Terry Lewis and how that started him on his diversion into the crooked underbelly of Queensland, exposing the truth behind generations of endemic corruption. Matthew Condon, and I like to call myself a reporter. Wonderful. Matthew Condon, thank you so much for joining us on The Journo Project. Oh, you're welcome. It's great to be here. Thanks, Nance. It's uh, great to be here at Avid Reader. You've got a bit of a long association with Avid Reader Bookstore oh here God. at West End, if haven't I, you? If I had a dollar for every event <laughs> I've done where we're sitting, um, I wouldn't have to work. Here we are in that lovely little patio where people pack in to, to hear the yeah. authors and get their insights. So. There's been some incredible, really genuinely incredible <clears throat> moments that have happened here. Truly? Yeah. Like, what, what has happened? I did a book um, <coughs> launch with Trent Dalton for his book Boy Swallows Universe 18 months, two years ago and the world knows, Trent has shared this in public that there are some real life characters that he's based, some genuine Brisbane gangsters that he's based his characters on yep. and by chance because of my non-fiction work I've been in touch with the same people that he's fictionalised in that book and one man in particular, whom I won't name, but who was a, one of the heaviest gangsters in Queensland for decades, who was Trent's stepdad for a number of years, and that's Lyle in Boy Swallow's Universe. So as a surprise, a shock it turned out to be, for Trent, for his launch, I contacted Lyle and said, is there anything you'd like to say to Trent at his launch? And down the quotes and read it at the launch and it was there wasn't a dry eye in the house uh, people were weeping hugging it was it was like a message from a ghost 35 years ago incredible. and yeah it was absolutely incredible moment certainly for Trent his mum was here his brothers and We've interviewed Trent, of course, on the Journo Project, and he mentioned you, Matthew, and the influence that you had on his work. So that's really lovely. Yeah, it is really well. lovely. I mean, you know, I still remember him. Oh, my God, he was just this wet behind the ears <laughs> kid who drifted over to Q Weekend from the Brisbane News, but just a prodigy, it has to be said. Mm. Phenomenal observer. And he learnt, he did, to his credit, he, he watched us, and the older guys and women, um, how he went about our business and he absorbed it all and turned it into 
something unique. So what do you think it is that marks a, a great journalist, Matthew? It's interesting looking back after you've been in the game for... 35 it, years. Well done. <laughs> and you're still hanging in there? Yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> Haven't gone to the dark side yet? No, absolutely not. Never, <laughs> never will. Um, you know, the older I get, the more I value um, um, how well you have to listen. Um, the older I get, the more I recede into the background. I think Trent Dalton learned that pretty early, but, um, you know, it's not, it's never, it never was initially. I mean, we were taught, uh, you might remember Nancy younger than me, but, you know, we were, we were never the story. Yes, very much. Um, but the older I get, the more and more I'm, the smaller I become. I suppose in a way that's sort of going against a lot of trends now where I think in increasingly people who see themselves as journalists perhaps do see themselves as the focus of the story, but it sounds like you're yeah, going back true. to those traditional values. Yeah, I mean, there's mm. a lot of... We all know, everyone knows, anyone that consumes any form of media, there's so much noise out there mm -hmm. and no-one's listening. And, um, you know, I could walk out into Boundary Street, I could walk 100 metres and talk to somebody and listen and get an incredible story. They're all just out there, but they're there for people who are prepared to listen and not shout to the rafters, you know. And that takes time too, doesn't it? Yeah. A lot it, of time. It, it does take time. And, you know, if, if this evolves over time and becomes part of your skill set, you know, people often say to me, I think they say, they say it to Trent, they say it to Headley Thomas, and they say, mm -hmm. you know, people just want to, they just want to tell you their stories. It's, that, that is only because I think many of us have reached a point where we've learnt how to listen. Um, that's why the stories come to the antenna, because there's not, no noise, obfuscation, it's a genuine attempt to listen and you know the older I get to the more privileged I feel to be a journalist I mean you take it for granted when you're younger that you can just bowl up and and barnstorm into somebody's life take what you want leave and publish and um, it's just an honor and a privilege to be able to do that and I see that more now what uh, hones your antenna to that to those stories that you've uncovered these wonderful series of books that that you've got under your belt and the stories that you continue to write for the Australian and for the Korean Mail but how do you pick those stories you say they come to you but you've got to also there's an interplay there well there is but um you know since I embarked on this the true crime books on Queensland police and political corruption which I sort of accidentally stumbled into. Oh, really? I mean, it was just one day I was ready to write a new novel about the journalist Wilfred Burchett going into Hiroshima in 1945, and the next minute I get a phone call from an old friend to say, look, former police commissioner Terry Lewis would like to meet you and talk to you about a project. And I just thought, I'll go as, as because I'm curious. You know, I'd, I'm not thinking of a project. I'm thinking, gee, I wonder what he looks like after all these years, how he's holding up mentally, what physical situation does he live in. I'd like to just do, go and have a coffee with him for an hour and that'll be fun and it'll down the track it'll be a great dinner party story. <laughs> and exactly 10 years come February the 1st, exactly 10 years, 
I've been working on this project from that moment. So that it was a pretty definitive interview or time with him, if you can remember the date it, as well. Well, it just sucked me in. And then yeah. for 10 years, and in fact, I just got off the phone coming here to meet you today. People, thousands of people have come to me because they now know I'm the corruption guy in Queensland, <laughs> you know. I'm going to tell him my story. So they, it's an unending pageant of um, people wanting to talk and share documents. And, uh, and you know, Headley, Thomas, Kate McClymer, they will all tell you, I'm not putting <coughs> myself in their league, but I'm saying that <coughs> once the ball starts rolling, you become the lightning rod for those types of stories. And 50% of them are rubbish, but you have to be patient and listen and sort through that and sometimes it's magical. That's why it's a great job. Can I go back to where it all began? Uh, I read that you started the Gold Coast Bulletin, Matthew. I did. I did, it, I did my degree at UQ, although, I, I'm, no offence to UQ, but I learnt more in the first month at the Gold Coast Bulletin than I did in three years at uni. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, things have changed at uni now because, uh, you know, I do teach some journalism at Griffith University, obviously, but... It's a very, very, very different landscape to what we were learning way back when. But um, there was no, absolutely no striving towards anything remotely practical. I mean, it was ridiculous. <laughs> and you only see that when you get out off campus. Um, but yeah, the Gold Coast Bulletin was great because you did everything. It taught you all the basics. First round was police rounds. Uh, murders, car accidents, robbery, you know, it was incredible. Dizzy, really. For a, It's funny how uh, how the powers that be in newspapers, radio, etc., they throw their freshest cadets into some of the most uh, physically and psychologically distressing rounds. And, you know, I'd get screamed, screamed at across the room by sub-editors, and it was all of that kicking up the backside and learning the hard way you know <laughs> it does sort of imprint it into your subconscious though a lot of those rules doesn't it you know you never really forget how to write an intro once no, you've been no. balled out in front of the newsroom a couple exactly of times exactly right <laughs> and do you still go back to some of those principles you i loved that you introduced yourself as a reporter first that's really interesting even though you're such a renowned author now but those principles still inform your work yeah Absolutely, they do, and they've informed. We can elaborate on this, but they've mm. they also played an enormously important role in my my books. Mm. So the two jobs, if you like, have played around with each other and helped each other and warned each other off certain things through my entire publishing career, which is over. Well, I've been publishing books now for thirty years, so um, and it it never goes stale. You know, it's always fresh, and every day there's always something new. And I, every day I learn something new. You never, as you know, in this job, if you think you've nailed it, don't be a journalist. You never, ever will capture it 100%, because you arrive for an interview or you do a certain story, and it's a completely different set of circumstances to anything you've ever done. It might be similar, but all human beings are unique. So you're coming at something new every time, which is what keeps me attracted to it. It's not even just that sense of you never know what you're doing each day to the next, but it is learning something new at each new job. Absolutely. Absolutely. And 
you know, managing people is um, so interesting and extracting information, but without abusing your position. That's the sort of delicate. Uh, how how line. do you gain their trust, Matthew? Are there any techniques, or is it really that time factor again? Yeah, some some people will never trust you. Uh, but through, for example, the crime books, I've established um, a number of incredible sources. That uh, there's one in particular. Obviously, I can't name him, but there's one <laughs> in particular, and everything he rings to tell me has been 100% correct. I mean, there's, his strike rate is perfect. Now, I, he trusts me because I, I have vowed vehemently he will never be named, ever. And nothing will point towards him. So when I write stuff from him, I have to be very careful about how I write it so that someone might pick that up and go, I know who that is because there's a connection between that person and that person, so that must be him. So I've got to be very careful about how I treat him. And I've done many, many stories with him and kept him at a very comfortable distance, and he trusts me. Now, there's no way I would do the dirty on him for the sake of a story and lose a source I've had for six years who has been phenomenal. That's a pretty big lesson for all the journalism students or... Yeah. want to be journalists out there isn't yeah it? if you're lucky enough to find some great sources then you just have to one be incredibly grateful because you're lucky you're lucky to get two great sources you know in a career and um treat them with the utmost respect and sensitivity yeah that brings me to the question too of press freedom i think matthew quite um beautifully and we'll be segueing a bit in this interview but of course uh, just over six months ago there were raids on news limited and abc journalists largely looking for their sources what were your thoughts when you saw that well horrified is this the new new that if you write a story that upsets the bureaucracy then your entire career is an open book to be sifted and and analyzed and removed and it's the, the, the most basic tenet of why we do our work. And, you know, just to see ad nauseum what's coming out of the United States, especially as we're speaking, the so-called impeachment trial, I use the word trial, in a qualified manner, you think the public must be able to recognise that this is completely wrong. This can't be happening. And as will happen with the impeachment thing, he won't be impeached. Daily politics and daily American life and world life will move on until his next atrocity. So, but the impeachment has raised the bar. So, this is the whole point of press freedom. There are bars, and once you cross those lines, you can never go back. So, it is up to the community to um, take this seriously. Otherwise, they'll be missing what they once had and it'll be it'll be gone has the australian public become a bit blasé about press freedom how do we communicate yes i think so and i read many websites and many Mm. noble websites the journalism union and great material and fantastic stuff and warnings and this is to the precisest detail this is what's happening at the moment who's reading it apart from other journalists i mean how do we disseminate the message that we're on dangerous ground here and you need to listen. 
how do we get that through? It, you know, I've known for a very long time to get a message through to the general public is a very difficult thing. It takes a lot of hard work and a long time. You almost have to bludgeon them for something to suddenly seep in and become accepted. How do you do that with this dangerous position that the media is in at the moment? I find it interesting, the intersection here with a lot of the stories that you've done through that Fitzgerald era and uh, what happened in that time in Queensland, that erosion between state and judiciary and police. And I just wonder, do we need to communicate that this could be echoing back to those days? It's not that long ago, like 30 years ago, that that was really happening. Absolutely. And what most people don't realise, which is it's terrifying and fascinating at the same time, is that there were a series of interviews done by a man called Richard Lancaster and he interviewed Joe Bielke-Peterson just prior to when he was dumped or sacked as Premier and and after that sacking. And he did a suite of interviews that are now available if anyone's interested in the State Library of Queensland. And in one of those interviews, Joe essentially talks about fake news. I mean, this is 1988. And he had a notion of this, and he had a concept of this, and how he would—he uh, was threatening the local newspapers and saying, "Watch what hap- will happen to you if you go too far." That was the word from the government, from the premier. So we've got a fake news apparatus happening in this country, decades before Trump. It's just a fascinating and interesting historical moment. Uh, the way the press was massaged and managed for decades leading up to the Fitzgerald inquiry feeding the chooks was unbelievable mm-hmm. and I've interviewed many of those journalists who had great splash page one stories fed to them by corrupt police and I've asked them about whether they knew what was really going on at the time and why they did nothing about it and one of them in particular, I won't name him to embarrass him because he's, he was, over the years, a terrific journalist in this state, broke down and cried and hung up. He couldn't answer the question. It's a simple answer. If I went against the powers that be, my story's dried up. I was finished. But if I went with the swim, I got fed material. So in that position, he made a decision. It, I would have no qualms about that decision and if it cut me off from the government, from the police, that's the way it is. I would just keep working. But different times, different context, you know, this was happening in the, from the 1950s, 1960s, went right through the 70s and the 80s, so we're looking at four decades of a degree of media acquiescence to what was really going on during that period. Phenomenal. Are we close to that happening again? I don't think so. I mean, I can't be certain, but that that old template, it's impossible. Mm. And it's one of the reasons why the whole corrupt system collapsed. The second the Fitzgerald inquiry um, started its initial hearings, the whole thing fell like a house of cards because they had adopted a template of behavior that worked very well for corrupt police in the 50s and 60s and they were still trying to force that template over on the 80s and it had become stale and no longer tolerable. That was one of the reasons why the whole thing imploded. But um, today, the entire scene is uh, it's like Mars. It's completely different. And 
in some ways more dangerous because you have a the shrinking of conventional or um, traditional media but an, an exponential explosion in social media and so-called report reportage and stories that appear untrammeled unchecked uh, unstoppable so it's no wonder people are confused about what is real and what is no longer real is it as simple as trying to encourage people back to the traditional mastheads where there is that sub-editing, that checking, the importance of going to that before going to something you've seen on Twitter? I think, or, I think yeah. there's a lot to be said. Um, you know, this is, a very, this is an industry that has a very, very long and proud history. And by and large, most of the people that go into it are into it for the right reasons. Mm. I mean, I taught some students at Griffith some investigative journalism mm. last term, and you know, of the class of what started as, I think, 25 plus, it, it, it's like boiling something down. At the end, by the end of the course, you had this core of these six young journalists, all female, and they were phenomenal. I mean, if I was an editor, I would employ all of them. So they're all in it for the right reason. They're in it to make a change. They're in it to defend the indefensible. They're in it to bring truth to the people. These are the most basic and elementary characteristics of, of good, good journalism. And all of these six, each of them had it in spades. And I thought, wow, okay. This, this profession is a long way from petering out when you've got 18, 19 year olds like this champing at the bit to, to let loose their talents, you know. The future's in good hands. Well it is, it, mm, you know, that's good to hear. even if there was two or three I'd be thrilled, <laughs> you know, but to have six of them all of varying talents, some were great colour writers, some were, the writing wasn't spectacular but their investigative skills was phenomenal. phenomenal. Mm. And you often have, it's hard to get the perfect mix of both, you know. <laughs> you either get one who's a great investigator or, and the writing, I'll get better at that down the track. But the passion, the, to have the passion at that age was so uh, heartening. It is an interesting question, isn't it? Do you think that legislation is needed to protect press freedom? But I think it intersects again with what you're saying. With all this explosion of social media, how do we kind of define what journalism is now and cordon off yeah. that bit of what we're doing? Legislation. Why do we need to legislate something that is so intrinsic and, and basic to our rights? Would it just be a, a government show, show all? Um, and, and in a month's time we're moving on to something else. I think it has to come from somewhere else. It has to come from the community and it has to be discussed. There needs to be debate, essentially, so that it gets through. You know, people, if it was legislated, maybe, I don't know, it's impossible to tell, but the message is not getting out there. That's that's my worry, and where the me- we we give the message, so why aren't we getting it out there um, successfully? I wonder. I mean, is it also part of saying I wouldn't have been able to, you wouldn't have been able to get these true crime stories and expose what you have if you couldn't have guaranteed the privacy of those sources? Precisely, and there they were, just wouldn't have happened. <laughs> there were many, many, many dozens mm. of people, civilians, 
uh, working police officers, retired police officers, uh, um, public servants from almost every walk of life. And, you know, it was a, I'm not pretending it was an easy job, it was an incredibly difficult job. But, you know, in some of those books, in the acknowledgements, I thank the unnamed people who had the courage to come to me, each with a little piece of the jigsaw that helped me put a picture together. And, you know, any, any attack on, on whistleblowers is a disgrace and an affront to our democracy. Perhaps is that the key? Do we need to get some more legislative protection for whistleblowers? I know Adele Ferguson really felt strongly about that. I don't think there's any doubt about that. I mean, again, just going back to the United States and mm. the, the whistleblower in terms of the Ukrainian aid that was withheld by Trump, none of this would have been happening without the whistleblower. So they perform an inc- incredible function in the community, but then they have to have somewhere to go to impart the information. So I'm worried about that, the, that, the, the breakdown of the sequence. Um, certainly they need to be protected to the very nth of the law. And I've seen, I'm interested that you've worked in so many places in the UK and Germany and France. Is Australia really far behind in terms of the freedoms that you've seen in other places? Or how do we compare? It's a difficult question because our defamation laws are so incredibly through the roof. So you go to the United States, you go to the UK, I lived in London and, you know, every day you'd go down to the corner store and pick up five newspapers and just go wow bang 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 you know and it became points of debate and people would be discussing it on the tube and you know I don't know whether whether it's a matter of in, of higher engagement with discussion debate and and you know the issues of the day um, rather than anything else I don't know is it a population issue too that Australia is that much of a smaller country and it's hard for us to sustain, I suppose, that number of different outlets? Maybe? Yeah, it is. It is. It is impossible to do that. It, you can't. You can't have anything approaching that. Which and it brings its own unique set of problems, uh, having this vast continent with so few people in it. So, what do you look back on as some of the highlights? It sounds like that Terry Lewis interview would be one of them, or many, one of many. Yeah, I mean, the funny thing is that I didn't recognise it at the time, but it cha- really changed the course of my career. You know, I remember stepping into his house in um, Stafford Heights on that morning and sitting down with him, and we just started talking, and he said, well, I'll see you next week. And I had no concept that that would turn into an odyssey that's already extended to 10 years so that has been there have been many lowlights and highlights of that I guess one of the most recent um, stories that I'm most proud of only because it resulted in what traditional journalism can achieve and that was the story of the women who as children were incarcerated in the Walston Park Mental Institution, formerly known as Goodna. Now, I had a personal attachment to that story, which I didn't reveal in the story. Again, it goes back to my point that I become smaller and smaller as my career continues. But my great-grandmother died in that institution in the mid-1950s, and my grandmother was incarcerated there in 1940 with 
postnatal depression, can you believe that? She was locked up for six months, electroshock treatment, and experimented on with drugs because of postnatal depression. These women had come through this system. They'd been runaways um, uh, and incarcerated there in the late 50s and early 60s. And in there, they were sexually assaulted, experimented on with drugs. It's impossible to believe what they went through. And they'd been seeking compensation as former wards of the state for 50 years plus. And I went to an event associated with the, criminal, the crime books and this woman collared me and said, look, you need to hear our story. So I met her and met all the other women. And we did this incredibly harrowing feature story for Q Weekend magazine on what those women went through. Now, within days, the government contacted me. And then within, I think it was two and a half months, they were compensated. And that was a big bill for the government. But finally, these women had enough money to look after their health. Some of them had never been in, in a plane, never f gone anywhere. Some of them were able to buy a roof over their heads for the first time in their lives. And to me, the satisfaction of changing those women's lives like that, because the story went insane around the world, Facebook and, um, yeah, it was a f phenomenal reaction. The power of journalism, Matthew? Well, it's still there. It's still there. And that was only, you know, two and a half years ago. And I thought, wow. Yeah, that's what it's about. This is what it's about. Affecting change. Exactly. Exactly. And I think it's interesting, too, that you speak about your personal connection to that. And perhaps it's something that we... I, I feel I've had to unlearn in a way. I'm interested on in your perspective on this. But when we were learning the ropes, it was very much... You can't let your personal views come into things. But I've actually found that some of the stories that have affected the most change have been, it's almost like my radar's been honed because I have a personal connection with them. So yeah. Yeah. Um, you need to separate yourself somehow from it once you're in that story. Is that your experience too? That was my experience. Mm. And in talking to some of them, I instantly thought, I know, th I know this language. This is the language I grew up with. This is the whispers and the talk in the corner of our lounge room when they were deciding what to do with my grandmother, mentally. She was in and out of that institution, triggered from the 1940 event for the rest of her life. So her whole life was about getting the medication right, a journey that began in 1940 because she had postnatal depression and the electroshock treatment. And she attempted to take her own life three times, once when I was nearby. Let's just say that. So when these women started telling me this, their stories, I went, I know this. I know this. I know the language. I know what, when they're swearing. I know the phrases. Um, I've heard all this. I've been brought up with this it as my soundtrack. Yeah. And so I'm not going to stop until something happens. So that's a driver, you know, that keeps you going. And, I, and I'm just thrilled that um, it worked out well for them. And it took you till that late later point in your career to be able to do that story and bring that justice well that's the whole thing too yeah. and I, I see this with, um, and I was probably the same myself with young students and they're mm. very excited and, and you want to bottle that up you know that lightning <laughs> in a jar and, but sometimes you've got to wait to have the experience to be able to affect something and in fact when I think about my novel The Trout Opera which I published mm -hmm. in 2007 
that took me over 11 years to write that book because and I I think it's because I I had a great idea but I at that point I didn't have the skills to pull off the idea so it took that long I did other books and journalism in between but it took sitting on this idea and thinking and working out how to do it for over a decade before I went now I can now I know how to do it so that's just patience Journalism is that craft in the background that helps you become that great author by the sound of it. Yeah, it's been incredible for me in terms of learning the power of um, clear and simple language, the power of observation, the power of listening, and of course research, you know. I mean, even 10 years back I look at myself as a journalist and can't believe that I thought I knew everything about research, you know, I was just a novice. And, you know, maybe projects come along to fill in some gaps for you. So these corruption books forced me to start digging a bit deeper in terms of my understanding of what research actually meant. Um, But, you know, the interesting thing is all documents are wonderful. Primary documents are Mm. the greatest. Um, But everything rests with people. That's what journalism is. It's about other people and their stories and how it all fits in. You know, you can read documents in a back room for six months or you can go out, literally go out and meet people and sit with them and have a meal with them and have a coffee with them and understand the human condition and how things affect people and how life can change in a nanosecond for, for a lot of people just because one simple thing happens and their life is thrown off course. So this is what I'm, I try to say to my students too. I beg them to get outside, to get into the world. You know, I once had an editor, Peter Smark, who was a great editor at the Sun Herald in Sydney. And he came back into the office, it was about midday on this day. And he had a big booming voice. And he stood in the middle of the newsroom and he looked around and he said, to all the journalists, he said, what are you doing here? Why are you here? You should be out there. And I never forgot that. (laughs) And he was 100% right. 100% right. You know, we've got Google today, we've got Google journalists, and they just think that everything is there. It's not. Queensland Newspapers is one of the best libraries. Mind you, it, it changed circumstances a decade ago, but one of the best archives in the country that's just sitting over there waiting to be plumbed by young journalists if they want to go the next step. But you've got to connect it to the people as well and get that context. Absolutely. All stories reside in other people. You know, the best stories, I think. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's endlessly fascinating to look at how we behave and what people do under pressure and what people don't do. Is, it, is just as interesting. And what drives the Terry Lewis's of this world and also what drives the women and the bravery of them to come forward and tell you about what they went through well, exactly. all those years ago. And what's fascinating mm. about that story is that it was, in the end, sometimes you write something and you don't know what you've written mm. until a lot later. Mm-hmm. But that story, I realise, is the story of women. It's driven by the women. So the women... Um, prostitutes etc etc many whom I'm proud to call my friends and a lot of older ones who have got stories that you can't believe (laughs) I still can't believe them 
they were entangled with the corrupt police. They earned the money that went to the corrupt figures, and they brought down the system with the Fitzgerald Inquiry and their stories. So it was all about the women. They controlled it, and they, if they wanted to, and they did, they brought the system down, which is an amazing story. And some of them died for it as and well. And died for the privilege, exactly, yeah. exactly. Mm. As you have shown in your books, and thank you so much for sharing just a glimpse of your practice, Matthew. I've really appreciated it and telling us about it. Is there anything you'd like to end our discussion on journalism? It sounds like you've still, after 35 years, got a love for the job. Well, how can I end it? I've got an interview I mentioned to you earlier that I'm doing tomorrow that I'm so excited about (laughs) (laughs) that I can't wait to meet this person and sit down for three or four hours and get the information I'm looking for. So... You know, I'm as excited about that, which is happening tomorrow afternoon, than when I first started at the Gold Coast Bulletin. Um, It's never diminished. In fact, it's probably intensified for me. So I can just say, and I say to my students, and it depends on how you look at it, uh, it can be an incredibly noble profession, and they should fly the flag. I think that's the perfect way to end. Matthew Condon, thank you for joining the Journal Project. You're welcome. Thank you, Nance. (laughs) That was renowned journalist Matthew Condon speaking to me from the Avid Reader Bookshop at West End in Brisbane for this episode of the Journal Project. Streets of Your Town is produced by Nance Haxton, a.k.a. The Wandering Journo, with production assistance from Michael Adams. That's it for this episode. I'm Nance Haxton. Stay up to date with the latest episode of Streets of Your Town by subscribing on your podcast app on iTunes or SoundCloud. See you next time.